I was not going to step on that applause. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Welcome to, tonight, to tonight's program in the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club of California. We're very glad you're here with us tonight. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial. And just a quick housekeeping note, there are question cards spread throughout the room. I see some of you have already discovered them. Write out some questions if you have them for our, our guests tonight, excuse me. Uh, we'll have volunteers who collect them and they'll get them to me and we'll try to work in as many questions as we can tonight. Um, one last reminder, we are recording this for podcast and television, so if you have a phone that makes noise, please silence it. If you have a child that makes noise, just <laughs> hug them and shush them if you could. Anyway, I'm now pleased to start our program. Our guests today are the creators of the award-winning film called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. <laughs> Jimmy Fales stars in the film and co-created the story of the film, which is partly based on his own life. And Joe Talbot is the director and co-writer of the film. And now let me introduce my co-host for tonight, Michelle Miao, the producer and host of the appropriately named television and radio show, The Michelle Meow Show. So, Michelle? Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. And I, I just have to put this out there. If you're here tonight for the very first time and haven't been to the program, the show, although it's The Michelle Meow Show, what it's really about is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. <laughs> All right, let's get started. I'm so excited to meet these dope guys in person. I mean, the movie is such a gift to San Francisco, but also a gift to the world. Um, just reading about your friendship, both of you, I, I like, I'm jealous. Like, I, I, I want to be your best friend and tell you my life story and so that you can make a, a kick-ass film about it. Let's you start with that. Third. You can be <laughs> our, our third best friend. Oh, I, you know what? I'm going to take you up on that. I, I know where to find you now. Um, but let's start with that. Let's start with your friendship and, and you are childhood friends. You both had this plan to make this film for a really long time. Uh, but walk us through the whole thing. I mean, it was like, what was it like? Was it like, hey, Jimmy, let's make a movie nah, out of your I mean, life? I think it was, you know, that's the thing about the city is, you know, when you're growing up, you kind of, there was like a, a, a kind of a silent acknowledgement of each other before we saw each other because we were like, you know, kind of in the same neighborhood. So it was like, you know, we would always see each other and just be like, oh, who is that guy? Or who is that guy? But we never like said anything. And then we, you know, there was an event happened. You know, everybody used to kind of you know, be outside back in the day. That's one thing that's changed a lot. It's like all the all the youth was kind of outside at the park, so everyone from every neighborhood kind of whatever was always outside. And um, there was like an event. We were like playing football or something, and I finally got to meet him, you know, and then it was just like brief there, and then I met him again like, you know, probably months later, and then um, I ended up um, reconnecting with his younger brother, Nat, who like helped us out a lot um, with the concept trailer and just like just helped us out a lot, period. Um, and he's uh, he's a little closer to my age, so I um, I went back to their house and we ended up having like a heart to heart talk. Me and Joe, when we 
ran back into each other. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, I was with your brother. And he was like, oh, you know. And then uh, we just talked for like three hours that night. And I was like past curfew at my group home and everything. And I was like trying to tell him like I wasn't partying. I was just talking. They didn't believe him. They didn't believe me. He called and he but, was uh, like, yeah, I'm just here talking, having a nice long conversation. Like, what drugs are you doing? You must yeah, be like, out <laughs> with girls, doing God knows what. He was like, no, I'm just inside a home talking, yeah. you know, into the wee hours of the morning. But that became how we connected. Exactly. And that was just kind of the foundation for uh, for this. Yeah, we would we'd sort of, um, the neighborhood that me and Jimmy met in was like Presida Park. So sort of on the, the border of like Mission Bernal. Yes. <laughs> My parents raised this. They're here. <laughs> that was them clapping. I think. Go Bernal. Um, but we would go on these walks through the neighborhood, uh, and which we didn't realize, I think, till later was probably unusual for like just you know two young boys. That's how we connected. It was like we just talked, and um, you know, kind of about everything and anything. I feel like in our lives and. At first, it was really informal. I don't think we ever thought, oh, these conversations will become a film one day. But, uh, you know, years and years of that, you hear all these stories. He'd share stories with me. I'd share stories with him. And it was also a way, I think, when we were stressed to kind of, um, you know, you have a relief sharing things with, with your friend. And we didn't have a lot of other guy friends that I think we felt like we could be that open with. And I think one day it was a joke. We were like, oh, we should turn these stories into a movie. And it's one of those things where you sit with the idea for a while. You tell it to a few people. I think probably told it to my parents first. And they thought it was an interesting idea. And then we told <laughs> other friends. And then you sort of realize, OK, we're not crazy. Maybe there is something in this. And then the next big thing was, OK, how do we make this movie, though? We've never made a movie. <laughs> and then so that was a five-year process, which is a whole other thing. But Well, you, yeah, you... you throw a Kickstarter campaign, apparently, um, and do really well. You know, one of the things I pulled when I was sitting there in the theater, and I, I was late to the game and watching the movie a little bit because I wanted to be make it close as possible to our interview. Mm. Um, so I'm sitting there with 10 other folks at the Landmark Theater in San Francisco, uh, and and it was very in, it's very intimate, right? Um, but the the picture comes up first, and for some reason it just hits me where I'm like, it feels like Barry Jenkins is in this film or something, or he's mm. had some kind of influence. And I do my research and I read more. The, the story is hilarious where I was like, oh man, I got chills. Barry Jenkins does have a part in this thing yeah. a little bit, a little bit. Mm-hmm. It has Very, a little bit to do with the, the, the Kickstarter. Campaign. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. <laughs> We're going to do this a lot tonight. Like, you tell the first half. Okay, well, okay, I'll say just the first half. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, Barry was, you know, he was the only, we basically reached out to him because he was the only, you know, we had seen Medicine for Melancholy, and that was like, we didn't think there were other filmmakers in the Bay Area, let alone San Francisco, so we reached out to him for that because we were like, you know, trying to get tips on how to get our movie made and how to get started and stuff, and then um, that's the first half, so you can... Yes. Go ahead. Um... Basically, yeah, we'd see him, I would see him around the mission. And he had only made one movie, this movie, Medicine for Melancholy, that was you know, made in San Francisco. And I think he was making commercials at that time. And I, we wrote him, and I was surprised. He wrote us back, and he was like, oh, yeah, I'll meet with you guys. And so we, I think the first conversation I had with Barry, I was like, do you really think we need a script? 
And he, I think he laughed because he thought I was joking. And then I was like trying to play it off like I was joking. And he realized I wasn't. And he was like, yeah, you need a script, man. Uh, and so then we wrote a script. And the first draft, I'm sure, was not that good. I haven't gone back and read it. I'm a little afraid to. But Barry was really nice and encouraging. And he gave us notes. And, you know, it takes time. It's like 100 pages of God knows what at that point early on our first script. But he read multiple drafts. He, I even have some old email of him being like, I want to produce this movie. And then he went, oh, guys, I can't because I have to go make this movie in Florida, Moonlight. But, you know, and we said, oh, good luck, Barry. That'll be great, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really trippy because that all happened. And then uh, he made Moonlight, you know, with these producers who at that point, obviously, it was a risk they took on Barry. He'd only made the one movie. There were no huge stars in the film, which is something that we encountered, people trying to say, you need stars to get this financed. And the people that were kind of, you know, part of the team of heroes that made that film happen were Plan B, Brad Pitt's company, um, and A24. And so we watched Barry have this incredible journey from afar and kind of rooting him on. And then a year later, we were making this movie with Plan B and A24. And it was nothing I think we ever dreamed. My producer, Klee, and I, we, we met with the producers at Plan B um, on the set of this movie, Ad Astra, that's now finally going to come out, this Brad Pitt movie. And it was the most surreal experience. He's, like, hanging from, like, a green screen, like this, like, you know, it was very bizarre. It was in a big studio lot. And they told us they wanted to do it, and we left and we were just crying because for Jimmy and I, obviously, we've been dreaming about this a long time. So, anyways, Barry was, was a big part of it. So cool. So was, was this what got you into filmmaking, or were you both thinking you wanted to be in filmmakers, and this was something you wanted to do as a project? Well, I mean, we've been making movies since we were kids, really. So, you know, and it's funny, they've always kind of come from experiences we've had, <laughs> honestly. So, um, but, you know, there was a point where it was like, you know, I did acting in high school my, my high school acting teacher is probably like the reason I even act today because she like made me believe I could do it um but um when I left for college you know I you know Joe was kind of here still and like you know he's, he's gone his best friend left and then I was I plunged myself into New York because I wanted to kind of a change of scenery and to see what it was and but I ended up putting myself I didn't do enough research so I was in a trade school but I'm an artist so it's just like a lot of people going there for business and it just wasn't the right crowd and um so I came back and we were both kind of in a weird depressed state and I think that's kind of what birthed us to start throwing ourselves into um making this movie happen yeah and I I was lucky that my my parents are writers and I grew up in a very creative household, but also my Uncle Don, who's here actually, always had a camera oh, yeah. when I was a kid. And that was like, I remember the first time, you know, he would make movies with us and my cousins um, in Davis where they lived. And he even let us play with the camera sometimes. And it was like magic. You know, I think every kid that makes movies eventually probably has that experience at some point young. So that left a big impression on me. And then... Um, you know, we made short movies together as kids growing up. Um, and I went to School of the Arts High School here, which was, you know, huge. Yes. Go Soda. We just were at Soda today. They yeah, just we were. showed the movie there. Um, and I had great, 
great, great teachers there that are still there, actually, um, that really helped shape my taste. I still think of my teacher, Scott Eberhardt, when I have a scene with humor because he has this really great laugh. Mm-hmm. And I always think, would Scott laugh at this? Would he think this is funny? And in fact, Scott is in the movie. He is in the scene that people consistently laugh the hardest at. Actually, oddly, I think is a moment of relief. For those of you that have seen it, um, he's in the scene at the end where Montgomery goes back to the house and is walking around and Montgomery jumps out and scares this young couple and that's Scott and his wife, two public high school teachers and they jump and Scott actually, bless his heart, came to Sundance and I had lied to him and told him we cut him from the movie because I wanted him <laughs> to be surprised. And he was sitting right in front of us, and he like it got a huge laugh. Right? So yeah. Can, can I ask the audience uh, by we can see by, by a show of hands how many of you have already seen this movie? Oh, just wow. about every. Okay, great. How many times? <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, okay. two. All right. Since we know that a good majority of folks here have seen the movie, uh, we'll go ahead and, and really get into and talk about the film. It, the film opens up with the. Uh, uh, I, I consider him a, a preacher-like character, mm-hmm. a guy standing on a milk crate, and you know the entire movie is majestic. It's poetic. Um, but to have grabbed me by the heart like so quickly and so fast on this topic of what's happening in you know Bayview Hunters Point. So if you're from if you're from here and you're paying attention to local news, right. I mean even just the discussion about the toxicity of the general area, the shipyard, um, it's really 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 sad, and it's only an example of some of the discriminatory practices or behavior of, of folks, you know, folks in power of the city. I'd love to, to talk to you about, you know, just, just, I know that, you know, the, the neighborhood itself has a lot of meaning to both of you, mm-hmm. uh, but how important it was to really bring that up as it served as the foundation of this conversation on gentrification and how black families actually historically have been routinely impacted in this city. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because that big article that ran, I think, on the front page of the Chronicle, and that I think um, this it was actually broke weeks after we filmed that scene. But of course, that had been people from Hunter's Point have been talking about that for years, and there are people here that knew about it. Um, you know, there are people that have been trying to, I think, bring that to, uh, to more people's attention for a long time. Kids growing up, nosebleeds. Uh, cancer rates over there are very high. Asthma. As Jimmy lived over there. And we had a lot of friends that lived over there. And it's something that, I mean, it's... I think part of the question is, now there's a cleanup effort. Uh, why? Why now? Why not all those years, you know? And there's big development plans on that very street where we shot, you know? Um, the guy who plays the preacher in the film is kind of a local legend. Uh, he's a rapper named Willie Hen, who's from the Fillmore. Um, but, you know, he obviously really understood that when I, I talked to him about the role and a lot of the guys who appear in Hunter's Point, the group that's across from Montgomery's house, some of them are people we grew up with. They're all San Francisco natives. Um, but I think it's, it's an important and really tragic part of our history. As San Franciscans, 
you know? I think it's I think it's looked over in, you know, in racism because you often look at like police brutality and like, you know, trying to get a house or or all the other kind of blatant stuff that's out there, but you don't look at environmental racism, right? It's like put you there in the in the toxic. So it's important for people to know that too, you know, because that's something that most people won't really, you know, talk about that much. So. Even San Franciscans, longtime San Franciscans, you know, don't always know that yeah. history, I think, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and especially the part on the, the scandal where um, the company or, or, or I don't remember exact, exactly the name of the company that was tasked with testing the levels of toxicity in the, the soil. And what they did was take sample uh, sam- soil samples from different areas yeah. to prove that it was safe enough to build, you know, the new developments. I think it was, the project is like 12,000 new homes or, I'm sorry, yeah, um, uh, dwellings or something, apartments. And, and then now, yeah, why, why the sudden cleanup? And uh, some of those folks have been called out, and I think in jail. John. Um, I'm not one of them, by the way. <laughs> um, so we interviewed someone recently who uh, had made the new Tales of the City miniseries, and that, of course, is set in San Francisco. But Michelle raised the issue of, you know, except for a couple shots, it was actually filmed elsewhere. Um, uh, yeah. This film not only is telling the story about San Francisco, the fact that it is in San Francisco, the fact that it is on streets, people know, and all of that. I mean, you couldn't have told the story in another setting. Do you, is that, do you think so? Absolutely. No, this, this story wouldn't permit that. You know, it's like we're, we're natives. We love the city. You know, we wanted to make it as authentic as possible for natives. It's like we can't, we can't let the natives down. And, you know, they're going to know. You know I mean? If they're lying about you, know, they're, they're going to know either way. So Even the beginning. Can't, that's what I'm saying. It's like they know that the, you know, the house in the movie isn't actually on Golden Gate. They tell me all the time, like, hey, it's not on Golden Gate. Like, yeah, we know. <laughs> you know, so. But, uh, it's yeah, true. So. Or that the journey that, that you and Mont take in the beginning from Hunter's Point. Yeah. All the natives are like, wait, what? But he's in the mission, and then he's in Geneva. <laughs> I'm like, it's bullet. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's following in a long line of, you know, geographically inaccurate San Francisco movies. But, um, yeah, so we, you know, we wanted to at least, you know, let them have something. Because, you know, I feel like every native is kind of, you know, they never pass up a chance to tell you they're from San Francisco, and they're super prideful. So we wanted to give them something that they could be like, oh, you know, they, they know that place, and they, you know, something that they could sort of latch on to. So that was, that was important to us. Yeah, it's true, because I think there's an incredible feeling. I always had it growing up. I feel like we would talk about it. You see something familiar to you on screen, and it makes you feel special. Even movies like Mrs. Doubtfire, you see recognizable places growing up, and it just has this funny effect on you. It's like the, the magic of movies. And I think, you know, for us, that was something that was, that was really important. Um, you know, and I think Jimmy says this, we almost feel like we made accidentally like a period piece because so many of the locations that we shot don't exist anymore. And the movie's still in theaters, you know? It's like that fast. Um, where Montgomery's house is, you know, which was, it's vacant across the street. That's where they plan to build, literally right across the street from him where those guys are standing in the film. They've already built a new apartment 
that looks, I think you described it as a shoebox. It looks like a shoebox. I said a shelf. A shelf. It was a shelf. big, like, dresser or something. Right next door. But the projects were the, there's the candy lady, the scene with the candy lady, and San Quinn, who's another San Francisco legend, is in it. He's arguing with her. Double Rock, those have been torn down. Um, you know, it's, we felt like we were chasing ghosts making this movie. Someone in the audience asks, I guess, some technical issues of like, was it difficult to get permits to shoot? Did you use permits to shoot? Yes, of course we did. Did we use, did we use permits in the city of San Francisco? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> we, this was the first movie that we ever used permits, though. Uh, you know, which was a definitely a, a, a change for us. Yeah, we're, we're not a, you know, we didn't come from a big, you know, it's not a Marvel movie, so we absolutely <laughs> needed permits. Um, and it was, it was tough, you know, it's like a lot of people, they can shut the whole street off we can't shut the whole street off we can only stop it for a little bit of time get the shot and then open it back up and then wait for the traffic to clear and then get the shot again so it's like little stuff like that that we had to do with our budget and being you know high school dropout no no experience prior acting you know it's like we had to work with what we what we could you know it did make for some interesting situations because yeah usually you know if you're a bigger film you can shut the street down Mm -hmm. When we had a scene with a naked man, <laughs> the rule that the city told us was um, that's the only bus stop we'll let you film that scene at. <laughs> and you have to still let buses through. So it was amazing. We'd be filming it, and then the bus would come 24, and we'd go, okay, we got to stop. And the people on the bus, <laughs> we'd try to run over and cover him. It was also very cold that morning. It's crazy because it's the 24 bus, and anyone who rides that, it takes really long, but it was coming every five minutes. <laughs> yeah. like, like, wow, so now it wants to come now, and we don't. There's a conspiracy there, somewhere in there. You know what, though? I mean, um, kudos, because I think the rule is uh, you can still do the, the nudity thing in the Castro uh, as long as there's a sock on it. Oh, yeah. That... Um, or, or if it's a big <laughs> festival, like, you know, Pride or something. So considering it was a shot for your movie and there was no sock on it. Yes. <laughs> that, was, um, oh, that was wonderful. Well, it was during the mayoral race, and Jane Kim was campaigning across the street. Right. I said, Jane, I think you're going to want to leave now unless you want to be in the background of this. She said, oh, thanks. No, no. I think to her, she was like, well, it was my rival when I ran for state senator who came up with that policy of banning nudity, full-on nudity, unless there's a sock on it. But anyway, yeah. back to the movie. Yeah. Back to the movie. Um, man, you know, as a viewer and, and someone who's been here for, for 19 years, I mean, I came out to San Francisco to come out. And um, I, I, the thing that I'm most sad about, and you grasp this feeling and this emotion in the film so well, is missing that San Francisco used to feel so safe and affordable, and I could do so many things as a queer you know, woman of color and be, be whatever, whoever, and come of age and learn of a bunch of stuff, especially art, culture, music. I miss the, the local music scene so much. Not that it's not necessarily still there. It's just different, yeah. right? But um, you capture this essence of feeling lonely. Like when you go out and you're walking Market Street or you're talking to someone who's new here, and you tell them, like, it, that, yeah, that spot used to be this, or, you know, this is where so-and-so grew up, or, like, this used to happen here, there was this festival, and they kind of just look at you like, awesome? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then to, 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 to add to that, you know, Jimmy's character, 
um, missing this sense of home and safety, but also community and being just what the title says, the last black man in San Francisco. Uh, I'd love to, you know, just discuss the, 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 my emotions, and not that I'm asking you to be my personal therapist here in front of a bunch That's of okay, folks. That's okay, I'm here. Um, okay. But <laughs> to share your own emotions, since you know, parts of the film were about your, your life and your experiences. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the loneliness is, that's part of, that's like, I think, one of the main feelings that natives kind of have watching the movie. It's like when you don't even feel accepted, especially me, like, you know, growing up, seeing a lot more black people and then not really seeing them, you know, later on in my life. It's like, it was just a little weird. And then you, you, you lose, and it's not just black people, it's like San Francisco's always been a melting pot. So I know a lot about a lot of different cultures, you know, so, but it's just like, the community is lost when you're losing all of those people, not just black people, but just the natives that were there, whatever race they are. So then it's like you're walking down the street. You don't even know the people in your neighborhood. It's like I couldn't. It used to be like I would leave the house and it's like, you know, sometimes I'm like not in the mood to talk to someone. But it's like if you see someone, you got to say hi because they're just like, hey, what's up? And you're like, you got to say hi. But now it's just like, you know, no one even knows you. Or it's like, you know, even like a curious glance from a stranger back in the day, you would you would strike up a conversation on the Muni bus or wherever on the street you would even just catch a quick glance from a stranger like they see you, they acknowledge you. You don't even get acknowledged anymore. We're all here on our phone. You know what I mean? It's like they're either here or they just, they don't even care. So that's, you know, that's a big difference in in what I've seen. And, you know, it it really, you know, affects a lot of people. You know, it, it affected me a lot. Someone writes, and I assume this is for Jimmy, because I believe people often show their inherent talents at an early age, I will share with you a memory of you on your fifth birthday. Is this you? Jimmy Joe, or Jimmy? Joe? I'm, I, okay. Somebody when they were five. Your father gave you the video camera and you filmed the entire birthday. Was that Joe or Jimmy? Uh, that's probably me. That's him. Okay. Sounds like I'm not a director. Congratulates, congrats on for continuing your passion. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, but a question, another here is... If the movie is somewhat based on your friendship and one of you is white and one is black, why did you decide in the movie to have the central friendship between two black men? Well, oh. Okay, so (laughs) about that, about that, about that. Um, It is not based on our friendship actually at all. It is based on the character of Montgomery is based on a friend of ours named Prentice, who's a very unique person that we based <laughs> that we based the character off and me and Jonathan's friendship was built from when I met Jonathan when I met Jonathan I felt like I'd known him for years and we were just kind of together every day from the day he flew out here two weeks early and then on even I was you know sleeping in his hotel room when we were shooting the film sort of thing so we were together all the time so that was our own friendship that we built and it wasn't based off anything but he just you know he just is that kind of person that was just so open and and genuine and and loving that he just became a part of the family sort of thing but it was it was never based off me and joe's friendship um it was completely different yeah and it's a natural question because i think obviously yeah we're friends and so and the film is about a friendship but it actually it's funny because it was like when we started talking about the movie we were like it was there was no friendship in the very very early stages of it and then I, uh, after dropping out of high school, wanted to like take some film classes, so I started taking classes at City, mm-hmm. and I met this guy, Prentice, in the class. Prentice, his name's Prentice Sanders, 
his grandfather was police chief in San Francisco under Willie Brown, Prentice Earl Sanders, for those of you that remember him. So Prentice is a wonderful guy. He's really, like, has a unique spirit. Mm -hmm. And so it's fun to imagine, because he's so different from Jimmy, what that friendship would look like. Um, uh-oh, was that me? That wasn't Someone's me. That wasn't me. <laughs> um, but, and then it kind of developed from there. And like Jimmy said, we met Jonathan, and then he took the shades of that character that Prentice had inspired to, like, a whole new level. Um, skateboarding. I love this, that it was included and it was part of Jimmy's character. Uh, personally, I mean, the first bone I broke, and I told you this in the green room, was my thumb, because when I moved to San Francisco, I also tried skateboarding. I was into the skate culture, and San Francisco has a rich history of skateboard culture. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is that some folks might generalize it as if it's like a homogenized racial uh, sport of, you know, there's a line in the movie that's like where Jimmy's character's dad is like, uh, you're not still riding the skateboard, are you? Mm -hmm. Why are you dressed like a white boy? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. the, the thing about skateboard culture in San Francisco, though, is that it, the, the history, it's also politics uh, or political. Like, for example, I don't know if you know this, but Tom Amiano, out gay at that point, supervisor, um, had helped the, the skateboarders who wanted a safe place to skate since they were all trying to escape police officers who were shooing them away, but created some kind of task force. And then eventually when Gavin Newsom uh, was mayor here of the city, they, they really started to think about how they can develop a, a, a skateboard-friendly space. Yeah. But I bring that up just because, I, one, I really want to know if you, you do skate, Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks like it, and you do it very well in the movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> get, um, and, and kind of introducing that concept and it being actually very San Francisco. Like, I, don't, I don't know if people actually know that skateboard yeah, culture right is there. very, very right much across, here. Yeah, Embarcadero. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's like, that was like the mecca of skateboarding in the 90s. There was like people coming, you know, skateboarders that were leaving where they were from to come skate here. This was like the mecca. This kind of built a lot of things and, you know, shaped a lot of the street skateboarding period. So I feel like that's a part of San Francisco. And it's also like something I picked up from my friends um, also. So and it's also a good way of, you know, transportation. You know, what I mean, if the bus <laughs> is taking long, you could sometimes you could get faster on the skateboard somewhere than, you know, waiting for Muni. So and then you don't got to deal with all the crazies on the Muni. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, or you could just pass by them as opposed to sitting down with them. But um yeah, so I mean, you know, definitely felt like uh, that was important. I, I I do skate. I don't skate as much anymore because I have a job. I'm not trying to get injured and not be able to do my job. <laughs> but uh, but you know, when when I can, I definitely do. So uh, it's always going to be you know a part a part of me. You know, and it's a a way I got to explore the city a little bit. You know, I, I I've explored a lot of the city that I didn't know. You know, through skateboarding. You know, and met a lot of people that I might not have met without a skateboard too so I feel like it was uh, super important to put that in there and Tony so one of the guardian angels of our movie was this guy Tony Vitello who uh, who runs Thrasher and Thrasher actually was founded by his father in Hunter's Point it's been Hunter's Point since the beginning and so when we first sh we shot this concept trailer Jimmy mentioned earlier it was the first thing we did when we were kind of trying to figure out how to make this movie it's a very short piece it was five minutes I filmed it uh, hanging out of my brother's car, basically tracking Jimmy as he skateboarded through the city, telling the story of his grandfather that had inspired us, the true story. 
And we put it online, really not knowing what to expect, but we started getting letters from people saying, oh, we want to help make this movie. And a lot of those people that wrote us <laughs> became sort of our film family to help us get the movie made. And other ones just became these sort of uh, helpful angels along the way. And Tony was one who wrote us and was like, you know, how can I help? And we're like, actually, we have a lot of things you could do. Uh, so he connected us in a lot of ways. He, he helped us meet Daywan Song. So the guy that plays Jimmy's aunt, Tashina Arnold, in the film, her boyfriend who's trying to look like a really bad skateboarder in the movie, is actually one of the greatest skateboarders of all time. <laughs> and part of that came from, like, we were like, when you grow up in the city, one of the things you see often are, like, couples that look like that. You know, interracial couples in San Francisco. That's a part of our upbringing. So we were like, what would be a really hot couple? Okay, Tashina Arnold and Daywan Song would be an awesome couple. <laughs> and luckily, they both were down. Tashina was flirting with him so outrageously <laughs> that he was blushing so much he could barely deliver the lines. <laughs> <laughs> but he was such a great guy, and he was so nice. And half of our crew was more starstruck with Daywan than anyone else, honestly, because they all had his posters as kids. But Tony, you know, connected us to him. Andy Roy is in the movie, who's another local legend. Um, and he helped us build the board that could actually fit Jimmy and Mont on it for that whole skating sequence. Oh, he connected awesome. us to this guy who built the board because um, Jimmy was very adamant that it not be a long board because long boards are lame. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you think of those electric scooters. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> John. Um, Someone in the audience asks, what happens after the movie ends? Where does he go in the boat? Oh, Marin? Is he dead? <laughs> Fairlawns. <laughs> Honestly, Bart was taking really long, so I was... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, you know, they always say, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, if there's nothing else left for you and you don't feel at home anymore where you're from and I felt like the house was what drew me to the city and I didn't really have that anymore it's like I guess it's time to go start you know somewhere else start new somewhere else so that's really all that that's supposed to represent and it's like you know what's more cinematic getting on BART or <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know so <laughs> yeah um. pretty much pretty much yeah I mean it, it is a thing that people ask us often and I, I we I think purposefully wanted to leave it open to interpretation it is interesting that I think the different feelings people have about San Francisco often come out and what they interpret the ending to be some people have come to us with really dark interpretations other people are more hopeful um, some people say they go back multiple times and have different feelings each time and I think that was our hope you know because I think right now it is really hard to define the city. There's a lot of criticism from outside the city. Like that article in the Washington Post um, about San Francisco. I think we, all of us natives and longtime San Franciscans, I'm sure many of you in this room have lived here longer than I've been alive, have like really, um, we're very passionate about the city and what it means to us. And any criticism from outside is part of what led to the line in the movie, you don't get to hate it unless you love it, because we've all bled for it. <laughs> and so I think everyone's at a different point in their journey in wrestling with that question of what do we do? Some people are fed up with a city like, like Tashina Arnold's character, Wanda's like, 
I fought for this city and I've decided to have a you know life outside of it now and try to find happiness and tend to my garden and you know like do things that I don't want to do in front of Jimmy with my boyfriend you know day one and um, she just has created a different life for herself she's happy there and I think other people like Jimmy's character Montgomery obviously even they have sort of a difference in the way that they're dealing with San Francisco so that was part of why it was important to leave it up to interpretation. Uh, I appreciate that. I mean, there was some point where uh, there was sadness, there was feeling a loneliness, and then um, especially when uh, Jimmy moves in and, well, he's basically squatting, right? It, the, the, the house that his grandfather built, um, and uh, something happens, and the, the couple that was there moves out, so it's, it's empty. You got me going there for a quick minute where I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm, I'm, I wonder which which homes are vacant people that have. are going for like multi millions of dollars that people. Someone are... did in Pack Heights. <laughs> yeah, we read a story. We we're going. Is this too crazy? And then it was like in the Chronicle. It was like guy squats in mansion in Pack Heights for a year. I'm like all right, I guess. I mean, I guess yeah, awesome. the odds the odds of a black guy doing it is very low, but <laughs> it's a movie. That's true. I mean, you know. <laughs> That's true. Like I said, you got me going, and then I was like, yeah, you're probably not a good idea um, not going to do it, but but that there were many things going on in my mind, like, what could we do? What could we do to claim our space, but also leaving the movie with this sense of, like, redefining, uh, you know, what property means, hmm. uh, and, and how sometimes, like, what we own or what we, we, we think is ours can... Uh, paralyze us from who we are uh, as an identity sound like a poem right now but i mean that's how superb the writing was um how many how many drafts did it take to kind of get where you're at it was the first one it was the first one yep (laughs) once you realize you needed a script yeah oh yeah i wrote it in a day i think it was a day it took us to write no no god like eight drafts probably more is it I think it was more than eight, but maybe... We'll call it eight. We'll round down. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Eight. (laughs) No, it was a lot. It was a long time trying to work, because we were really emotional. We were angry when we started. Mm -hmm. And this first draft was angrier. And I think that, you know, there were certain things along the way. I think we grew. We had more... We brought on more people who were really loving and who felt like the best of the Bay Area. Our other co-writer, Rob Rickards from Berkeley, he's like a Berkeley high guy through and through. He's like one of the most loving people we've met. Kalia, our lead producer, her family's from Hunter's Point originally. They moved out to East Oakland where she grew up. She's one of the most caring, compassionate people. So all these people on the project had so much heart that that bled into the script and it became more loving. And then I saw late in life uh, I was embarrassed I hadn't seen it earlier, uh, Harold Amad. And Hal Ashby, to me, I, cry, I I never in my life have had the urge to rewatch a movie so soon after seeing it. It's just not the way my brain works. I watched a movie like five times. I made Jimmy watch it. I watched it with my parents. There's something about the feeling of that movie that felt so much like the San Francisco that had been described to me of my parents' generation not just in the people, but the love. There's no villains in that movie. Even the people that disapprove of their love are treated with a kindness, and they're not villainous or hateful. They're just sort of, they don't understand. And that feels like the very spirit of San Francisco, that we don't, when we disagree with people, 
try to cancel them or come at them with hatred, that we try to be open and understanding and compassionate. And it's a city built on that. And at least it was, I feel like, when we were growing up here. So we tried to make the film get inch closer to that, that, that thing that Hal Ashby, I think, captured so well. I'm, I'm yeah. like Michelle in that I am a transplant here. I came here in 2004 at the beginning of the year. And I mentioned this in the, in the green room. Through my, all these years that I have been here, it seems like a long time, but I've heard a lot of people complaining about the city has changed and you know, what they don't like about the, the new San Francisco. This movie was the first one that really got across what kind of stuff was being lost, how the changing city was changing people. Um, and capturing that in, 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 in what's a small film, you know, a big project for you guys, but I mean, you know, it's, it's not, like you said, Ad Astra with uh, Brad Pitt. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, that's a real achievement. I think you're going to capture both the folks who are, and it, actually, let me turn this into the question, which is, the people who are coming to this movie, uh, what kind of reactions are you getting? Is it different from the people like me who are saying, oh, this is explaining something to me and I'm getting it emotionally and intellectually in a way that I might not have before, and then there are the people who, yeah, I lived here and I've seen this happen or this has happened to me or you know, whatever, you know? People who are getting different things out of this movie and what are they, what are you hearing from them? There's, I mean, there's a lot of different answers and, and you know, or, you know, things that people get out of it. I think an interesting one is, you know, you know, doing Q&As around the city when you have, like, you know, techies in the audience, right? And they're asking, like, you know, because they've seen this movie and they feel like they know a little bit about more what they're pushing out, and they ask, like, what can I do to not be a gentrifier, which is cool. Like, it's like, wow, like, you saw the movie and that's what you thought. That's, that's like, you know, one of the most, you know, unique reactions I've gotten. It's like, you know, for them to actually genuinely want to not be, you know, problematic towards our culture and our history and, and want to actually know, because that's all, that's all we're really asking from gentrifiers. It's like, if you have enough money to live where you want to live, then, you know, do so, but just do your research and, and don't try to push the people out, at least acknowledge them and, you know, the history and, and, and of where you're moving to, you know, before you just just plunge yourself into it. You know? Yeah, I think it's interesting because there's certain things people bring up I think you're, you're maybe aware of, you know, we talk about, but you don't know how salient certain points will be until it's out in the world. Mm-hmm. One thing, a lot of men coming up to us afterwards, sometimes even struggling to put the words together, saying how uh, moved they are to see men get to be sensitive. And it... It's really interesting because we never sat, I think, down and said, oh, we want to make something that captures that. I think some of it comes out of Jimmy just naturally and, and Jonathan, what he brings to his character. But a lot of men saying it feels really great to get to see that and see men cry. There was a really pretty heartbreaking reaction we got from one mother who, um, it was a mother and father in the audience whose son had been killed. And they said, and the father was very emotional after seeing the movie, and his son was a skater, and said that Jimmy had reminded him of of his son. And the mother said to me afterwards that um, when her son passed away, she saw men crying. Mm -hmm. And she hadn't seen that depicted in the media, specifically of black men crying. 
and getting to see the scene where Jordan, our friend in real life, and also, you know, in the film, when he looks like he's about to fight Jimmy and he starts to cry, she said that that scene was what she saw, you know, um, that night. So I think, you know, it's reactions like that, obviously, are, you know, mean a lot. Um, and then, you know, on a very different note, we just got back from our first time ever in Europe. And, um, I mean, I'd gone actually as a, as a young kid, but never as an adult. And um, we were in Switzerland for our European premiere at Locarno, at the Locarno Film Festival. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> It blew our minds. They had like an artist colony that had taken over an old military base, and it was like, wow, how do we do this in San Francisco? It was, it was amazing. Um, but it also was like, you know, they packed this, the Piazza Grande with 8,000 people to watch movies every night. There's just a culture there. My mom was joking. She was over there. You talk to the plumbers about like bicycle thieves. Like everyone watches movies, you know. It's just not something that's reserved for you know uh, select few. And so there's just there's something really beautiful about talking to people that never been to San Francisco, um, never been some of them to the United States, and really were connecting with Jimmy's character and his story, you know, across all ages. Yeah. You know, old Swiss Italian moms coming up and kissing his cheeks. <laughs> They do it. Yeah. They do it three times in Europe. Just so you know, when you go, it's not just two; it's three in some places. There's only two for me. I don't know. Maybe. He got... um, as we're winding down, I really don't want to leave without talking about how great the music and the score of the music. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you, you had me at tears, uh, Michael Marshall singing San Francisco, oh, yeah. and then you had me cracking up when you know he sang his signature. I got five on it. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, man. That yeah. was so great. Um, Joe, I know you worked a whole lot, a whole deal. You're a musician and, and all that. But uh, there, was so, there was so much that went into the score. Yeah, it was, we obsessed over it. I mean, first and foremost, our composer, Emil Mosseri, is like made the music of our dreams. You know, it was something that, yeah, Emil... And I should plug him. The which just got released on uh, double vinyl. The soundtrack. It'll be out in October. So oh, you can awesome. give it away as a Halloween gift at your door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got gold foil and everything. But um, yeah, basically, you know, I started writing music before we uh, we wrote the script because I'm weird and I, you know, for me it helps me develop the world just to think about musically what it feels like. And I knew there were going to be passages that were really driven by music. That's probably something me and Jimmy connected on even before movies was, was music. We're always sharing music with each other. And this movie felt like it, you know, I grew up on like all these big scores in the 90s, like Last Mohicans, my parents are always playing at our house. And you always have that really disappointing feeling when as a kid you're making movies I remember like one of the first movies you made and I tried to put like the last Mohican score to it <laughs> didn't quite live up to that music <laughs> and you I think from that point on I was like I want to make something one day hopefully that can justify a big score um, and for this in particular it felt like this is a it's we wanted to make like a kind of mini epic you know, it's a story of man trying to get back to his home. 
and sort of shades of the Odyssey, we would sort of say. In our you know, moments when we had delusions of grandeur, we were like, it's like the Odyssey. I never but, said that. No, Jimmy didn't say that. I think I probably said it. But it was, you know, the music for that that we imagined that was like, you know, big and orchestral. And um, it, that's also really expensive. <laughs> and we didn't have a lot of money. And so I was, I was worried about it. Um, and I talked to a lot of composers, and I didn't meet anyone that quite understood that. There's also this sort of... We, we really wanted to create something that felt both classic and old Hollywood. Um, I grew up on a lot of old Hollywood movies, um, and I, those scores always stuck in my heart, but also wanted to make something that felt new and fresh. And so I met... Emil, actually, I heard his music before I met him. He sent in um, a rough attempt at the beginning, that opening sequence, which, of course, is almost entirely driven by music where they're skating through the city. And it was so accomplished. And it sounded like he'd recorded an orchestra. I couldn't understand how he'd done it, like, in a weekend. It had, like, bassoons and oboes. And, like, I've never heard, you know, software instruments that sound, like, real. I couldn't get it. I thought it was a fake. I thought he'd stolen it from somewhere and said he created it. And then I was sure that he had, when I met him, because I was expecting this, like, bespectacled, older guy, balding, with, like, wisps of white hair and a turtleneck. And he was, like, this young, <laughs> handsome guy who's, like, younger than me. And I was like, okay, this guy's f- fucking phony. There's no way. <laughs> this is bo- th- th- But he's a great con man, at the very least. Something's weird. And he'd written it. He'd never written a score before. Uh, he'd done some smaller stuff for actually with Terrence Nance, who's amazing, and but never a full score for a film. And uh, he just understood it. He's like when it's like Jimmy. He's like now like someone. He's like a lifelong collaborator. And he was never afraid. I'd be in there singing to him, and you know he didn't kick me out. Um, <laughs> He eventually kicked me out, but he let me hang out there for a while, and he was just always open to collaboration, and I think Emil just, he always says, for him, he wanted to make something that felt like it was out of Jimmy's heart, and, you know, felt regal, and, um, because the house is sort of like Jimmy's castle, Mm. you know, and the Victorians obviously lend themselves to that, so, bless Emil's heart, he really, I think he, he blew us all away. We've actually got several questions from the audience that all ask about the surreal elements in, in the movie. One, one person says, I love the film. I was surprised by the surreal aspects of the film. Can you talk about why you chose to take that approach? Any thoughts? I don't even think it was a choice. That's just kind of how we are. I feel like <laughs> I feel like growing up in the city, you kind of, you know, just romanticized the, the past and, you know, just kind of you you dream things up to be these big, you know, like when I saw Victoria and when I was young, I thought it was like, you know, watching like, um, was that Anastasia, Fantasia, that Disney movie where it's like, you know, I just thought it was like super magical. So I think it's kind of always something we've um, (laughs) thought about in that way. So I don't, it it wasn't really a a conscious choice, really. It's just kind of uh, embedded in us. I feel like we'll always kind of have that element to us. Yeah, I think that's just, we like, tend to like stories that feel a little dreamy in that way, probably. And then I think nostalgia can feel like a drug. 
And I think there's a lot of, we, you know, in different ways long for the past, for an old San Francisco. So it felt like that lent itself to the way we wanted to, to depict the city as sort of dreamlike. And, and like Emile's music, making it feel out of Jimmy's heart, not like this gritty realism, but more like love, you know? We got about eight minutes left, um, and I still have a lot of questions. I like actually want to hang out with you, and I want to come over, and I really come want over. To be, I want to be your third come wheel. Come over, yeah. <laughs> um, a couple questions that I have. I mean, it was your debut film as a director, as an actor, as an art. You know, they call it that, but you, we know that you've been working on projects all along. Uh, my guess is that there's a second and a third and a fourth and some future projects coming up. I don't know if it's anything you can share. Yeah, well, we say this is the first uh, installment in our San Francisco trilogy. Uh, a different characters, a uh, different story. Jimmy will finally get to get out of the red plaid shirt that he had to wear the whole day. <laughs> <laughs> um... And there's not much that we can say about the second one, but we are hard at work on it uh, and developing it with a lot of the same group uh, as Last Black Man um, that all kind of came out of the concept show that became like our close collaborators. Um, And, um, well, I can say one little thing. Um, It will have... Uh, the lead character has shades of my mom who's here and my my aunt Margaret who are writers so it deals with journalism and a a very strange story that we unearthed actually uh, just after we finished the movie so like Glass Black Man will be based not not on a story that happened to my mom but on a story that happened to someone else we know that's sort of bizarre and will I think combine um, you know our love of the past in a city that's racing towards the future. So some of the similar themes. And then Jimmy just got cast in another movie. What? (laughs) As Jimmy fails? (laughs) No. Okay. No, no. John, do you you have any other questions? Because I want to take the loss. Um... We have lots of questions. Can you tell us anything about the film you're going to be in? Um, It's another indie film. It's not a big studio thing, so I'm not selling out. That's what I'll say. (laughs) I'm just going to keep it at that. Sorry. We do. We want to keep making movies here. That's the thing. It's like there's a lot of great talent coming out of the Bay right now. You know, Ryan Coogler... Uh, East, a lot of guys had the East Bay Boots, who was really, really wonderful to us. Boots Riley, who did Sorry to Bother You. And, you know, like Boots, like we want to stay here and keep making movies. That's the struggle, of course, for all artists, because we live at home right now, my parents' house, and they've been very kind, but they're probably getting tired of us at this point. <laughs> so, you know, that's always the thing. How can we find a way to do it here? If anyone in the audience knows a way. <laughs> No, but in all seriousness, that's kind of that's our, our dream, you know. So hopefully we can do it. Well, you might be the the, the start of a renaissance. I mean, the Hollywood became the movie making capital of the country, of course, after the earthquake up here, because a lot of the filmmaking industry actually started here. Chapman so, was up here. Yeah. Yeah, in the valley. Yeah. yeah. So uh, 
maybe and, the indies will get it started again on a, on yeah. a bigger scale. I mean, you guys and Lucas. And Coppola, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it so. actually is my, uh, I mean, it's part of my, my last question, which is the movie, sharing your experiences and even being honest and truthful about wanting to stay here and tell more stories of San Francisco. My question really was about, I mean, what it, uh, not what do we do, but this, this feeling of like hope and, and struggling to stay here. I mean, we just elected a, a, a mayor, a, well, We'll elect her again in November. I want to be I want to be technical about it because I don't think she really has an opposing uh, person running against her. Um, but she's born and raised in San Francisco and born uh, Western edition and really understands you know the concept of holding on to San Francisco and our values. And so, what do we do? These folks here have just seen this in great film who acknowledge the fact that there is a lot of erasure happening and an exodus. And most of those communities who are impacted are, you know, people of color, um, queer, uh, marginalized, elder, senior. I know we're doing stuff politically, but for, for most of us, and not to answer that question from the guy or the techie who said, well, how do I not be a gentrifier? Uh, but maybe the real question is not what do we do, but what do you two hope you know will happen in the new f- future in holding on to San Francisco? Um, sorry, I don't. No, no, no. All right. No, no. Well, I think you know, art drives the culture. So the artist community is dwindling. So if you bring the art back, then that helps bring some of the culture back. Yeah. And it, and it starts it starts with the youth. You know, we've inspired some youth from soda that are like, you know, they're making, you know, this little kid named Phil Elliston and his friends, they have like a little group that they do a bunch of films together and they're like super dope and they're like better than we were at their age. So if we can, you know, get them going and, 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 and keep that going, then, you know, there'll, there'll be a future for that sort of thing and it won't just die off, which, you know, we would hate to see. So I think, uh, you know, it starts with the youth, but, you know, keeping the art here. I think there are things that we can all do. Uh, I think that we can tax tech companies. <laughs> Same way everyone else gets taxed. I think we can build affordable housing. Not market rate housing, but affordable housing right. in San Francisco. Right. I think that um, we can look into these very suspicious fires mm. that have happened. Yep. Um, you know, which Mike Epps' character who plays Bobby, who has stolen Jimmy's old car in the movie, as he points out. Um, you know, there are people that are being displaced left and right, and some of the, I mean, there are a lot of very, very eerie circumstances. There was a story I was reading uh, about, um, I think this was in the city, this was outside the city, but a landlord who staged, you read about this? Yeah. A home invasion to try yeah. to scare out her tenants. I think that is an extreme case of something that happens very often. People are being robbed of their homes. And this is not a new thing. When Willie Mays, already a living legend, moved to San Francisco, the first house he tried to move into, he was turned down. You know, even Willie Mays was not above that. And at, you know, around the same time, they were redlining the Fillmore and rounding up, you know, blocks and blocks of people and pushing them out because they didn't get to benefit from the same GI bills that white soldiers had 
when they came back, you know? They were kept out of home ownership. Justin Herman. Um, and the city government participated in that. So I think that's why it's really important for us to know our history. I knew some of that growing up. I was lucky to be raised on some of that. But there's a lot I didn't know. I didn't know the story of Charles Sullivan, mm-hmm. you know, who's known as the mayor of the Fillmore, who was killed under very mysterious circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his legacy was taken over by Bill Graham. But he was one of the first people to bring in all those great musical acts to the Fillmore Auditorium, as, as you know, we know it. So I think it's important to know that history because it also, you know, teaches us how to fight what's happening today. There's a great documentary for those of you that are interested. James Baldwin visits the Fillmore uh, called Take This Hammer at the height of urban renewal, as they were calling it. And it goes to Hunter's Point as well. And you see, you know, what was happening, Um, the destruction of neighborhoods. So anyways, I think that it's important for us to learn about that for those of us that don't know, and hopefully that can empower us to to try to keep the very people here that make San Francisco great, because we're losing them. Joe, Jimmy, thank you so much for, thank for you. being you, thank for you sharing, so for Last Black Men in San Francisco, and thank you all for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Joey. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club, and you can listen to past shows at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.